The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. For the first time in four years, the Warbirds Over Wanaka International Air Show returns Easter 2022, featuring aircraft from the past and present as part of the RNZ AF's 85th anniversary celebrations. From the iconic Spitfire to the RAAF's F-35 fighter jets in New Zealand for the first time ever. Witness breathtaking aerobatic and pyrotechnic displays. The spectacle will be sky high. The Warbirds Over Wanaka International Air Show. Tickets on sale now at Ticketek. The new series on Aviation Extended, produced in collaboration with the Wings Over New Zealand podcast, is all about RAF Coastal Command in World War II. He said, look, just give me 40. 40 is what I need, which is a tiny amount, really. To give you a perspective of just um, how many, in relative terms, how few 40 is, we, the Americans, lose uh, 53 liberators. So just on one raid, we're losing more than actually Jubilee saying, listen, give me these and I can win the Battle of the Atlantic. They really were, I think, the most vital uh, long-range aircraft that Coast Command employed in the Second World War. I've read in post-war accounts of the incident it was hopelessly undergun. And it kind of annoys me because when it entered service, and OK, they'd only had two, three or three machine guns, but so did the frontline fighters of the RAF at that time. For the Battle of the Atlantic, I didn't think there could be any equivocation about the, the importance of Coastal Command's role. Dial into the series on Aviation Extended. That's aviation-extended.co.uk or go to your podcast player and look us up. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood. I'd like to welcome back to the show Max Speedy. Hi Max. Hi Dave, how are you? 
Good, thank you. Now, you are a Vietnam veteran and you've written a history book or co-written a history book on the Vietnam War. And um, in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the Vietnam War. So where, where did it all start? Where did it all start? Uh, thanks, Dave. Hello, everybody listening in. Hope I hope you enjoy it. Uh, where did it start? Well, look, any any discussion about the Vietnam War, uh, it doesn't really matter where you start. There's probably a history that goes back a few hundred years prior to that. Yeah. But what I'll intention, what I will do is ignore all of that, and we'll start around the 1962 area, which is of greatest uh, interest, I think, to most. Uh, contemporary historians. So we'll start from there. Um, domino theories of uh, communism taking over uh, the world, but, it, but certainly in uh, East Asia and South Korea, Bangkok, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, all of those countries were supposedly going to fall one after the other. When one went, the next would go. Right. Uh, and so Americans uh, pursuing that policy sent, first of all, a, a army advisors to South Vietnam to prop up the South Vietnamese Defence Force. That was beginning in 1962. Slowly but surely, the, uh, the advisors became war fighters and the Americans became more and more uh, heavily involved, protecting themselves as much as trying to give advice. I think by the end of uh, 1975, there was something like 28,000 American advisors had been through South Vietnam, right. uh, let alone the army numbers, which I'll get to shortly. Now, Australia did much the same sort of thing in 1962 and sent off uh, the first 20-odd Australian army advisory team to Vietnam. Uh, and we ended up, I think, having about 800 advisors through Vietnam, four of whom, by the way, got Victoria Crosses oh. for incredible uh, feats of uh, individual bravery around the place. So that was that. Uh, they started with about, well, they ended in 19, oh no, bigger pardon, they started in 1962-3 with about 30 helicopters of very dodgy and poor performance. By the end of 1965, when things were really getting heated, uh, they had something like 250 Hueys in Vietnam, right. and at which point the uh, the numbers really started to ramp up. This is when the Americans decided to go in and, uh, and fight a war um, alongside the South Vietnamese. And from 1965 through to 68, when I eventually got there, uh, the numbers of Americans as war fighters um, had grown to something like 560-odd thousand, wow. um, along with... Um, South Koreans, the Philippines, Thailand, um, Australia, New Zealand, Philippines, um, with all of our separate contributions happening from 1965 onwards, the total numbers rose to about 650, 660,000 uh, fighters on one side against pretty well equal numbers of uh, regular North Vietnamese army on the other um, and I certainly recall leaving home being told that, you know, it was a guerrilla war and we'd be fighting peasants with 
uh, sticks and rakes and the occasional AK-47. Well, that was so far from the truth, it wasn't funny. Okay. Um, it, was a, it was a war, regulars against regulars, and uh, they gave us heaps when they needed to. Um, so that's the sort of the basis of it. Yeah. Um, by, by the end of 1968, when I got there, and I'll, I'll jump a little bit between um, the Army and the, uh, the aviation side of it, but by starting with 250-odd Hueys, uh, by 1969, there were something like 60 assault helicopter companies there, and I'll get into the, the weeds of that later, uh, somewhere around 3,500 helicopters in Vietnam. Wow. Yep. And on any one day, there'd probably be a thousand of them airborne. That's amazing. I had no idea there were that many. Oh, huge numbers, huge numbers, just incredible. Um, so that's the that's the background, if you like. Now we um, should say we should say, uh, Max, that uh, you were a Royal Australian Navy pilot and you were flying Hueys there. Yes, yes. Look, I'll, I'll come to that as I can, if I can. Mm. Yep. <laughs> I'll do my best anyway. You'll have to keep me uh, corralled in, mate. Uh, yeah. I'm sure you will. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the Australian Army. Uh, 1965, as I said, was the American start of their serious build-up. Well, at the same time, March, June, 65, the Australians sent in the first Royal Australian Regiment. It was number one RAR. It was the first one to go there. They went to Benoit, um, which was a huge Air Force base um, northeast of Saigon. And the Aussies were attached to the 173rd Airborne Brigade. <clears throat> At about the same time, July 65, the 161 Battery of the New Zealand Artillery arrives, and they're stationed yep. at Benoit as well. Um, and not too long afterwards, um, in, well, nearly a year actually, um, your infantry people arrive in May 66, uh, 180-odd man rifle company, Victor 1 you called it, and Victor 234 followed on in time. Uh, they came out of, uh, they came to Vietnam having left the 1st Battalion of the RNZ Infantry in Malaysia, which is where they had been stationed. Right, right. Okay, so that's that's your army and artillery now in Vietnam. And along with ourselves, oh, well, sorry, the Australian Army, they're based at Vietnam, uh, based at Benoit, working with the Americans, and and this is where our our way of or Australia's way of fighting a war and the Americans diverged considerably. Okay. Um, the Americans were. Well, huge, I guess, is the best way of describing their their way of doing things. And they went in and uh, weren't frantic about casualties because they had the huge weight of arms. And they weren't getting many casualties to kick off with. Uh, but this didn't suit the Australian way of doing business, uh, and nor did it suit you people. Small army, um, more a uh, move in quietly, contact the enemy as best you can, do as best as you can and get out quietly. Um, and with those subtle differences in tactics, um, the Australians extricated themselves from the Americans and were given a province of their own to look after, which is Phuc Thuy, 
um, well southeast of Saigon itself. The capital was Vang Tau on the coast, um, and Phuc Thuy was quite a large area to the north and east of, of uh, Vang Tau. A place called Nui Dat is where they went to. We all have probably heard the name. Yep. And, yep. and they had their own uh, way of going about things, which was, as I say, go out quietly, search out the enemy, do what you can, and then come back home. This probably brings us now fairly neatly uh, to where the Air Force of Nine Squadron comes in. They uh, were there to supplement the Australian Army with the Americans and their huge build-up of Hueys uh, taking the Army into war. I mean, the, all armies have marched in previously and then in World War II they were taken by trucks. Well, now in Vietnam it was the it was a helicopter which was going to de deliver the soldier into the into the battlefront, and uh, this is where the nine squadron people became involved. Uh, Army wanted that sort of mobility, and they got a squadron of of eight UH-1B Hueys to assist them in that role. So now we've got the Air Force with the Australian Army down at Nui Dat. Um, in Late, uh, sorry, another year later in 1966, our one battalion is upped to a whole task force and became three battalions. One would be able to defend the home base, Nui Dat, and the other two would be able to go out on missions. And when you get to that size of an operation, you need a lot of supporting arms. So we've got tanks and APCs. We've got 161 recce squadron, a recce flight, I beg your pardon, of Australian Army helicopter people, Sioux helicopters and uh, a few Cessnas. And I think they might have even had uh, the Palacious Porter there, which was more a bit of a communications aircraft. Anyway, a very small aviation element of Army there, but Air Force was doing the main lifting of troops. Um, the Australian Army becomes... Uh, involved at Nui Dat, um, or sorry, gets properly located in Nui Dat around about May, June 66. Um, but very quickly, the uh, Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, decide that they will uh, see what they can do about this intrusion into their own space. And so we have the beginnings of uh, what became the Battle of Long Tan, 17th of July, uh, August, I beg your pardon, 17th of August, only two months after the Aussies and the Kiwis that had moved into Nui Dat, uh, there's a probing attack on the base itself. And D Company 6 RAR are sent out on the next day east of Nui Dat to uh, patrol and probe. And in very simple terms, they stumble across uh, North Vietnamese D455 Regiment and she's on for young and old. Right. Um, this is the Battle of Long Tan. Now, there were um, your people were there in the out in the out with D Company 5 RAR. Captain uh, Maury Stanley was there as an artillery 
uh, Ford Observer, and he had two bombardiers with him, uh, Bombardier Willie Walker and uh, another one, Murray Broomhill. Room Hall, I beg your pardon, were forward observers. I haven't worked out whether the three Kiwis were together the whole time or whether, as I suspect, uh, Maury Stanley was with one of the companies, uh, one of the platoons, and the other two guys were with the other two platoons out there. There were three platoons in the company, yeah. all separated by 100 or more metres or a bit further. I have a feeling that they were separate. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Maury Stanley does a brilliant job in bringing the artillery in uh, to support them. Now, I need to divert a little bit here. Um, I took your hint and, uh, and looked up that Danger Close movie we talked about last week. Yeah. And it's interesting to see how history is being so totally and subtly changed. Um, Apparently, according to the new history as set out in Danger Close, there were well over 4,000 rounds of artillery fired that day um, and all sorts of other stories being embellished along with it. The, the facts are a little bit um, shy of that. Uh, it was certainly one an amazing um, firefight it was the day was saved not by Maury, who did a brilliant job, or all the guys who were out there, but someone who was so far removed you wouldn't really believe it. Major Frank Crow had been in Korea and had seen the massed charges of people in their thousands trying to take positions, the North Koreans trying to take positions just by mass charges. And yep. the only thing that stopped them was phenomenal artillery bombardments. And Frank had um, been smart enough to increase the gun stocks at Nui Dat from 100 rounds per gun, and they were allowed to fire six rounds per day prior to Nui Dat, uh, prior to the Battle of Long Tan. More, uh, Frank Crow had increased gun stocks up to 300 rounds per gun. Okay. And during that day, each gun used 200 rounds. And then things started to get a bit severe. What happens if this battle goes on for another day? And so there was all sorts of resupply missions going on. Yep. Fortunately, they worked in the background. Um, and... Anyway, the long story short, I'm getting off the track, is that it was the artillery which certainly saved the day. There was some amazing bravery out in the field. There's no question to that. Um, but it was the simple fact that uh, Frank Crow had increased all the gun rounds. Now, there weren't 4,500 rounds fired that day. It was probably about 3,500. But in any event, that's a whole lot of artillery. It sure is. Uh, oh, so yes, it was huge. Can, can I just ask, I, I know that um, uh, 161 Battery, the Royal New Zealand Artillery, were involved there, but were there other artillery units as well involved? Oh, yes, there was a lot. But the interesting yeah. thing is that with Maury Stanley out there at Kiwi, he was actually talking back to um, his senior officer in 161, and I think it was, can't think of his name at the minute, it may come to me, um, 
and it was the Kiwi in 161 who was actually directing all of the fire. Right, gotcha. Yep. So 161 was there, but also we had, um, there were 24 pack howitzers there that day. I think eight of them were, six or eight of them were the Kiwi 161s, and the other 18 or so were Australian artillery. And plus an American 155 artillery unit was there as well. Okay. Now the 105s can fire at about uh, six to eight rounds a minute. The 155s were able to fire at about half that rate, I think, but not nowhere near as quick as the 105s. The other thing was that the contact was at about four and a half thousand metres range. Uh, which was just ideal for all the guns. They can fire out to about 10,000 more yards, but at 4,500, it was just right in the sweet spot, if you like. Okay. And that okay. did assist in being able to place the rounds so close to their own people. It's, it's, uh, quite, a, it's quite an amazing thing to be bringing the rounds down right on your own lines and oh they were they were getting closer and closer they had to walk them back slowly and it took a while um for both the forward observers and the guys back in the uh, bunkers at uh, Nui Dat to come to grips with the fact that they knew where all the rounds were going yeah. and then to bring them further and further back towards the guys in in D company um slowly but surely and when they got the right range they were only the uh the 105s and the rest of them were only bursting about uh something between i think as little as 20 meters in front of the um the troops on the ground our troops on the ground yeah it's a, it's an interesting um point in history too that this wasn't the first time that the new zealand artillery had done that um the uh, New Zealand artillery and field artillery in Italy had done exactly the same thing in a battle uh, uh, in a village called uh, San Michele. And uh, 24 battalion um, infantry got surrounded by the Germans in this village. Um, there were tanks coming in and they had nowhere to go. And so they decided to bring the artillery down on top of them. And the guys all went and hid in this big church that had like, I don't know, five foot thick walls. Uh, and they brought the artillery right down and flattened the village and, and uh, managed to wipe out the Germans that were right next to them, just about to capture them or kill them. So it, it's, a, it's a very similar situation. Um, I've talked to one of the guys who was there and hiding in that church and he said it was the worst thing. And he'd been through Casino. He thought it was the worst thing he of the whole war for him i can't blame him i can't yeah. blame him yeah yeah um it gets noisy i can tell you i've been close to some of that stuff myself but yeah. uh not that close fortunately um yes it was a it was a relatively standard uh thing to bring the artillery down on yourself if you had a decent place to hide um battles of coral and balmoral in uh early 68 uh, 1968, northeast of Benoit against the, again, another main force of uh, North Vietnamese trying to take Saigon, was part of the Tet of 1968. Um, Tet 68 was 
started on the 31st of January 1968, went on for three or four weeks, um, and the battles of Coral and Balmoral went through uh, in April and May, I think, of 68, as just further part of that. Um, one of our artillery units had one of their one of the one of their 105s actually taken by the North Vietnamese. That's how close they were. Okay. And okay. so the other guns, the other five guns, just all turned around, uh, zero elevation. The fellas on the gun that had been taken hadn't been killed. Uh, they, they got into shell scrapes and the other guns fired splinter charges um, at the taken gun. That sorted that out. Um, but it was not the first time that sort of thing's been done where you bring your own artillery fire in on top of yourself. And this was, this, you know, these guns were only a matter of 20 or 30 yards apart. Yeah, that's, that's, so that's, so that's how close things got at that st on that particular occasion. Um, so there's a lot of guys over this part of the world remember Coral and Balmoral for those sorts of reasons. Anyway, hey, we've jumped around a bit here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was hoping I was hoping to go from the uh, uh, the firefight at uh, Long Tan into into the Air Force um, who were there. I haven't mentioned the fact that it was a terrible night as far as storms were concerned, and Cloud Base was down to practically on top of the trees. I must now discuss first of all, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, the Department of Air policy um, that was sort of the rules of engagement, rules of flight, if you like, for Nine Squadron said something along the lines of uh, landing zones must be relatively secure where enemy resistance isn't expected. And so now we jump into the, the bunker where Brigadier Jackson is directing as best he can all of the operations going on in support of D Company. Um, he wanted to, they were running short of ammunition out there and Jackson needed aircraft because he had no other way of getting ammo out to the troops on the ground. He wanted aircraft to go out and, and drop some ammunition to them. Um, Group Captain Raw Air Force, Royal Australian Air Force, um, was asked whether he could actually go and do this. And he, Raw, cites this Air Force policy of, uh, you know, I can't go out into an insecure landing zone. I mean, my people might get hurt, which is exactly what was going to bloody happen. But yeah. um, that's what Raw says to Jackson. Jackson was not impressed. Um, some fairly hefty uh, discussion took place and uh, it's well documented. Jackson then turns to an American advisor from the 173rd um, who says to Jackson, well, I Brigadier, I dare say my guys can get out and help in just a few minutes. And, of course, in, in front of Group Captain Raw, he's been backed into a corner and can't do anything other than say, well, OK, I'll have my aircraft go out and help. Now, that's... That is an indictment of the Department of Air policy, not of the air crew who flew the mission. Yeah. Um, the guys who flew the mission were as brave as you could possibly get, and there were plenty of other examples where um, this sort of bravery did take place. But Department of Air policy was just that. 
Um, now, it suited the army, our army, for that to be the case. Uh, we didn't, well, the Australian army didn't want to go out into, into a hot landing zone and fight their way out from there any more than the Air Force wanted to. So what happened was, generally speaking, an SAS patrol would go out to find a secure landing zone away from the enemy. They'd chop down a few trees, as quietly as you can chop down trees. I don't know how you do that, um, <laughs> to open up the space. And out the uh, helicopters would go with the Army guys who would get out and then march or walk um, the other kilometre or more to wherever their contact was going. So that was that was Army Tactics 101, but Army Tactics 201, when, when their army people got into trouble, they needed the bloody helicopters to come in and take the wounded out. Yes. So they wanted it both ways, um, which really is uh, not an indictment of either Jackson or Roar. It was just the fact of the matter. Anyway, get cut into the chase. Um, Chris Dole and Frank Riley uh, are loaded up with ammunition and a bunch of uh, army guys in the back um, wrap all these uh, boxes of ammo up in blankets and so forth, blankets for the wounded on the ground and, and stopping the boxes from busting open and that sort of stuff. Um, they were lucky in many respects the there was a very it was right on sunset uh, it had been as black as pitch while all the storms were going on but there was a break in the in the rain there was a break in the clouds the artillery was lifted for just uh, stopped for i think something like two or three minutes no more these guys were waiting for that to happen and went in dropped ammo in the right place, got the hell out, the artillery started again, and uh, and the guys on the ground had some ammunition, which they desperately needed, and were able to continue fighting. But it was almost at about that time that the uh, the North Vietnamese decided to disengage, and the, and the battle at that point more or less wound down, or as I, as I recall seeing on the documentary somewhere, it, it just didn't die down. It stopped. Dead stopped. It's almost as quick as it had started. It stopped. Okay. Uh, from which point onwards, um, the APCs start to arrive from Nui Dad. Some of them had got lost or couldn't cross a river or something, um, and it took them a long time to get out there. But when they got there, the 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 battle itself was pretty much over. But there was an awful lot of mopping up to be done. Um, Medivac crews, I think there were eight Air, our Air Force helicopters at um, Nui Dat waiting to be able to get out and do Medivacs, which they did successfully. Some Americans were there out, out there first and did the first round of Medivacs, and then our Air Force guys came in after that. And I think around about midnight through until the morning, they were doing um Medivacs. It was very slow work, uh, dodgy place to go at the best of times. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's been criticism of both the Air Force um, and Army at that point. A um, couple of things happened. One was that relations between Army and Air Force at Nui Dat were vastly improved after um, uh, Dole and uh, Riley's efforts, uh, which certainly helped. 
And uh, But the longer-term thing was that Army actually got its own aircraft at this point. Oh, right. uh, the Air Force claimed the right to, to the air uh, and we'll, we will fly when it suits us sort of thing was the, the feeling amongst the Army. The fact of the matter is that unless you've got the aircraft under your direct command, not control, command and control, um, you haven't got the flexibility you need. So armies uh, these days have got their own aircraft. It's as simple as that for transport as much as anything else. So there you go. That's the that's the Battle of Long Tan. Um, significant for everybody. It's gone into history. Over here we have uh, it's called Vietnam Veterans Day, but it's on the 18th of August every year, um, and it's more a celebration, I guess, of Long Tan. Uh, although the Army do allow the Navy and Air Force to uh, have their little have their little things on the side. So we all we all <laughs> celebrate over here. Uh, hey, am I being biased? Of course not. <laughs> would, I, would I be biased? Not a hope. <laughs> all right, let's now jump across to the Navy, the fleet air arm, sorry, the fleet air arm, and how the hell did we get to Vietnam? Well, I've described, I hope, how the Air Force went to help the Army. Back here in Australia, our Navy or fleet air arm masters were trying to work out a role for the fleet air arm. I mean, if Air Force are there, then, well, Navy has to be there as well. And we yep. did have a big fleet air arm back in those days. Um, first up, it was thought that we could put up a new squadron of Hueys ourselves and send them to Vietnam. Um, doing much as the uh, Air Force had done with Nine Squadron, but it was worked out that at the end of the war, whenever that was going to be, we'd have aircraft surplus to requirements. Um, and so that, air, that thought was put aside. And because the US Army aviation side of life, along with everything else, they were trying to conscript more people than they could get, um, we're desperately in need of experienced aviators. And so our people uh, hit upon the idea of giving the US Army basically a small squadron of personnel. <clears throat> it amounted to four aircraft crews and a bunch of maintainers. <clears throat> and so was born the Royal Australian Navy Helicopter Flight Vietnam. There were four groups of us of about 48 to 50 people in each group went to Vietnam. First group went in September 1967 um, and joined the US Army's 135th Assault Helicopter Company. Now, the 135th had only itself just been created back in America, literally I think July, June, July, 1967, they'd been created. Yeah. And hit, they arrived in Vietnam right at the end of, uh, not at the end of July, it might have been the end of July, midway through August, 1967. <clears throat> they went to the 173rd up at Benoit, like everybody else seemed to be doing for a couple of weeks. <clears throat> 
And then our guys also arrive and join them first at Bung Tau and then all fly up to uh, the 173rd to learn the ropes of Vietnam. Now, we had in, our, in each group, there were eight pilots, four observers and four air crewmen. So there's your two aircraft crews led by a lieutenant commander, the OIC, all experienced helicopter crews, and the remainder were chiefs and petty officers, maintainers of all the trades, airframes, engines, avionics, armaments, as uh, of all ranks, chiefs and POs. And back in the day, these guys were very senior and very experienced. Yep. Um, we had a, a clerk, we had a sick birth attendant or a medic, as you'd call him now. Um, the first two groups had a photographer. Uh, what else did we have? Oh, a cook um, and even a steward. Okay. Uh, I'll get to the I'll get to the roles that these guys played, but that's that's who we had, um, and we integrated one for one in the one thirty fifth. Now, an Army Aviation Assault Helicopter Company consisted of a major as the CO, a captain, Army captain, as the XO. Now, when the Americans uh, got word that our side were going to be lieutenant commanders, equivalent of majors, and very senior lieutenants. They upped the, they upped the stakes on the first contingent to a lieutenant colonel in charge. But okay. what they did do, they put our officer in charge, the lieutenant commander, they put him in as the executive officer of the company. So a Navy guy is now the XO of an Army assault helicopter company. Right. And the pilots uh, went in rank for rank and experience for experience into the positions that would normally have been taken by Americans. Now, rank for rank is easy. They were all pretty senior, so they became platoon commanders and so forth after they got the experience. And so all of us, the lieutenant commanders and the rest of us in our aviators, I'm only talking about the aviators now, in their turn, we flew with warrant officers um, as co-pilots for the first couple of hundred hours to learn the ropes, as everybody did. The Americans coming from um, continental USA all had to do their co-pilot time. Didn't matter what rank they were. Yep. They did their co-pilot time with people with experience. And when we when we got our experience, both the Aussies and the Americans, then we slipped into whatever roles were available. And so. Very soon, um, uh, so the aviators were in platoon leader and air mission commander roles and the gunship leader roles as well. And the chiefs and POs were running the whole maintenance show. Purely and simply because in the, on the maintenance side of things, the, the Americans were all conscripts. They had thousands of them. And so each conscript was given a specific core training yep. and the difference between them and us was that our guys had such a broad training in all the business didn't matter whether you're a chief avionics or a chief's airframes technician with that on your that as your principal badge they'd been doing all sorts of cross-trade work for years 
And so they were able to apply that brilliantly um, to the maintenance cycles that were going on in these army companies. And it was to prove useful later on um, because, well, very simply, um, there were 31 aircraft in each assault helicopter company. There were 20 Hueys in two platoons. of. Uh, they were the slicks. They were the lift aircraft. Yep. There were eight gunships and there were three spare aircraft, total of 31. Every okay. day, every assault helicopter company had to put up 15 aircraft, one command and control aircraft, 10 lift carrying helicopters and four gunships and occasionally a spare. So every day we went out with either 15 or 16 aircraft. We had no options. You took the aircraft, whether they were serv fully serviceable or not. If it could fly, you took it purely and simply because we, would, we were the trucks for the army. And unless we had the 10 lift aircraft there, we could not take a full unit into the battle. Right, gotcha. As simple as that. And whilst we had rank, we sure as hell had no authority. The authority belonged to the guy in the back of the air mission controller's aeroplane, the battalion commander whose troops were in our aeroplanes. And here's okay. the point of liaison. The battalion commander in the back of the of the CNC aircraft, command and control aircraft, with his advisors, would be in command of where the troops were going. And he would, when I became an air mission commander later on, he would talk to me in the front seat of his aeroplane and say, this is where you are to put my troops. It was as simple as that. Right. Okay. I would then talk to my flight leader and say, this is where you're to go. And generally speaking, I would fly in over the, the landing zone and drop a, a coloured smoke of some description if it wasn't that easy to see where it was. The gunships would be with me, um, two gunships, two or four, depending. Most of the time we only had two gunships airborne at any one time. Um, whilst the other pair were back refueling and rearming um, so that we would constantly have two on station. Okay. Okay. So the battalion commander would tell me where I, where I had to put the aircraft with the battalion commander's troops in it. I would have to organise the defence of my helicopters uh, around the landing zone the battalion commander would have his artillery advisor also in the back of my aeroplane and occasionally, depending on who we were working with, other people. Um, but basically, a preparation for a landing zone would be uh, I would fly over the top of the darn thing. So we've got the artillery has just begun by the call of the artillery advisor in the back of my aircraft. Uh, generally speaking, any and every landing zone in the country was able to be covered by the 105 artillery. There were, there were fire support bases literally everywhere and pretty well interlocked. Um, and if they weren't interlocked, 
then you could call up the US Air Force, um, who more or less had aircraft on call, like a taxi rank, who you could bring in for an airstrike right. to, uh, to cover a landing zone should you need it. And it was literally that easy. Just ring them up on radio, tell them what your grid reference was, and they'd be there in a few minutes. Um, it was pretty well that good. Um, we had the occasional B-52 strike uh, that we went in and uh, coordinated with. They took longer to organise and were not under our control. We were, that was really big stuff. We would, um, we would be coordinated by headquarters at uh, battalion or even group level um, to say that on tomorrow there's going to be a, a B-52 strike in this area and you guys are going to be there with another uh, assault helicopter company and you're going to do this, that and the other. Right. Um, slightly, you know, longer-term operation. I mean, those aeroplanes flew out of Guam and uh, Thailand and um, you don't call those fellas up all that quickly. No. Um, they were playing a different tune. But anyway, that's the, that's the artillery and uh, immediate... Uh, bombing support that you could get um, at pretty well any and every landing zone. Occasionally, we would be outside artillery range and uh, and the B-52s and the Air Force wouldn't be available, in which case you had to then rely on your own gunships. Uh, and they would do as best they could with what they could see at the time. And the usual deal there was that we would, um, we would do our best to come in uh, unannounced with the gunships down one side or one on each side, um, prepping beside, sometimes under us, as we were on the last few hundred yards in and in front of, the, in the, and in front of us doing their best to keep the heads down because the the North Vietnamese Army was very clever. They rarely, if ever, shot at us um, until we were in the last few hundred yards of an approach. Okay. Generally speaking, they waited until we were actually on the ground and the troops were just getting out of the aircraft because the moment the troops were out of the aircraft and they could either... They could either get a, a helicopter with an RPG or, or shoot the pilots or something. Um, there were all sorts of uh, armaments we had to worry about. Yeah. But the moment they could get a few wounded soldiers and preferably an aircraft on the ground, uh, we were committed to that place. There was no options there. Uh, we had to either rescue the crews, well, not either. We had to rescue the crews and also to support the army who were already on the ground. Right. Which generally meant, of course, you go back, pick up another load and go into the same place. Um, at which point, you know, you've got a firefight on your hands and it gets a little bit uh, hard. But that was a general tactic. Wait until a few soldiers are on the ground and then all merry hell would break loose. Okay. Uh, and it could happen just that quickly. So uh, can I just take you back slightly? Um, you were talking about the artillery being fired first how far how far back would you be standing off and what sort of altitude would you be at oh, well if we were over the landing zone you could be anything as low as uh, a thousand feet or even less 
um, because the artillery is landing in the landing zone. The apogee would be halfway between the fire support base and the uh, and the wherever the fall of shot is. Okay, now I don't remember the heights that this stuff would go to. It depends on the type of fire that's happening. Yeah. If they were firing the full 10,000 yards, then you, you've got a very high top of arc yes. for the fire. And we could, generally speaking, uh, well, here's something. Wherever we flew in the country, we had to get a clearance. We had to clear where the artillery was or wasn't firing at the time. And to go from A to B, you knew where the fire support bases were, you knew what the frequencies was, you would call them up and they would tell you what was actually happening at the time. Okay. Firing out of this into that grid coordinate <clears throat> and the heights, uh, so and so. Now we could generally we generally flew around it, but occasionally we could fly under it, especially if they're doing long-range stuff. Uh, we could go and fly low. And uh, and fly underneath it. It was just, it's just what people did. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, at the landing zone, uh, we didn't have to stand back at all. If you're on, if, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, the command and control airplane usually flew around at fifteen hundred feet. Um, that was the considered height to be relatively safe from small arms fire. You could still get hit, as uh, as happened on plenty of occasions, at fifteen hundred feet. Um, but you took your chances. It was a much harder shot uh, to be effective. <clears throat> but but the first of our navy guys was killed that way. He okay. was supposedly okay. at a safe height um, at fifteen hundred feet, but the bullet didn't know that and killed him all the same. Right. Um, but. Uh, that was that was that aspect of it. Um, the the other part, the other aircraft we had initially until we started running low on aircraft was what we called Smoky, uh, just a slick with a huge container of oil. I think it was two or three hundred liters of oil um, in the back, a pump which pushed it up into the hot exhaust. And you got a smoke uh, screen out the back of the aircraft, and Smokey would come in a few seconds ahead of the slicks before they got to the landing zone, and put a smoke trail down one side or the other or around if he had the opportunity, the um, the landing zone uh, to shield the landing aircraft from the likely direction of enemy fire. Oh right, okay, interesting. But going back to the 31 aircraft and the 15 or so that we had to put up each day, uh, at one stage we were down to 17 aircraft. Wow. Okay. We're still putting up the 15 every day. Um, so Smokey was, uh, had to be done away with and become a, a troop ship, which was a bit of a pity uh, because it was a good tactic. It worked well. Yeah. That's just a really interesting thing to hear there because I've never seen that uh, in either documentary footage or, or you know, in, in the movies. I've never seen that done with the smoke screen, so it's interesting. Oh, I've got some photos of Smokey. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, I can send you some. Oh, thanks. I can send you some. Um, something I've missed, though, can I remind you of the Department of Air policy about going into relatively secure landing zones. Yep, yep. 
Right. When we went to Vietnam, when the Navy went to Vietnam, our directive from the Chief of Navy was was this. It was uh, was a a one-and-a-half-page directive. It had an awful lot to do about discipline and uh, pay and being good boys and all that sort of rubbish. Um, but in there was this paragraph which went, goes something like this. Should you be allocated a task which, in your opinion, is contrary to the provisions of this directive, endangers the national interest of Australia, or is likely to imperil unduly your flight, <clears throat> you are to report the situation to the Commander Australian Forces Vietnam. He's in Saigon, by the way. Having first informed your commanding officer of the 135th Assault Helicopter Company, you are to establish safeguards to ensure that your aircraft and personnel do not violate the territory, territorial waters or airspace of countries bordering South Vietnam, nor to take part in operations near the Cambodian border. Beautiful. Not so different from the Air Force one in some respects. Now, here's how it worked. I said that we had a lot of experience as pilots and we had a heap of rank. Well, we did. But when we went there, we had no combat experience. So to take my particular case, I arrive on a day. I get issued with my helmet and flak vest from a guy who's from an Aussie who's going back home. And so I've got his gear. I draw a pistol and go out to a firing range and expecting all the fold roll that we had back in Australia. And all of a sudden there's people around me blatting off doing anything they like. Um, <laughs> and I so I fire my 38 Smith and Wesson. And the next day I'm airborne on my very first combat assault. Wow. Didn't have a bloody clue. Didn't have a clue. Wow. Um, I'm a co-pilot. So here am I, I'm one person in a flight of 15 with a warrant officer in charge of the aeroplane and three other, uh, sorry, me and and then the the crew chief and the gunner in the back looking after the the M60s. I have no authority to do anything. And if I thought that I was being endangered, who am I going to talk to? Commander Australian Forces in Vietnam. Well, he wasn't easy to get to. I don't even know that I ever met him. (laughs) <laughs> then, okay, so I've got the commanding officer of the 135th to fall back on. Well, he generally, well, there were, there were three people who flew the command and control air for aircraft. The CO of the 135th, the XO, who was, who was another Australian when he, got, when he got, you know, after he'd done his co-pilot time, yeah. and me yeah. when I'd done my co-pilot time. But at the moment, I'm just a bog. I'm a co-pilot. No authority, nothing. If I'm endangered, no one's going to say, oh, well, well, let's get out of this lot. Not a hope in hell. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) All right, now elevate me now to the commander or flight leader, which I was for a while, um, leading the 10 slicks with all the troops or later on, as I say, the air mission commander. Okay, I'm sitting up in the command and control aircraft. It's a battalion commander in the back who's saying, you will put these troops here, son. Right, right, right. So, in the event, we ignored the directive. It was as simple as that. There was no yeah. hope, no hope of obeying it. Um, it's just that um, 
had we been on our own, had we been Australians working for the Australian Army, we probably would have had similar rules uh, or they would have been interpreted the same way as the Air Force did, relatively secure landing zones and don't get into strife. Right. I mean, when you're in it, then you fight your way out. That's a totally different deal as the Air Force did too. So we ignored the uh, that part of the directive. And in fact, our rules very simply were shoot first, ask questions later. And rule two was to refer to your rule one. <laughs> And, and talking about Cambodia, uh, there are a couple of times when we went not just up to the border, over it. Okay. All right. <clears throat> the um, uh, We operated everywhere. The <clears throat> Our Air Force guys operated with the Austra Australian Army who were at Nuidat, basically. We were with the American Army that was supporting the Australians initially in 1967. When I got there in 1968, September 1968, uh, the Air Force were looking after the Army. The 135th was no longer required and increasingly we were looking after the US Army and the, um, the South Vietnamese Army. <clears throat> I only ever did four lifts with the Australian Army. All right. All right. Um, and the rest of the time was always with the U.S. Army or the South Vietnamese Army. Okay. Here's the thing, um, just to give you a, an idea of how different our war was, 10 aircraft landed in a, in a very broad open landing zone in May 1968 and six aircraft were shot down in that landing zone. Wow. Four aircraft, the other four aircraft made it out, went back to the pickup zone and brought in another load of troops in the, in the four aircraft. In the first 10 aircraft, there were 100 troops. The four that got out, unlo unloaded, got out, came back with another 40 troops. There were 125 casualties in those two lifts. Wow. All right. That's awful. Oh, it, 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 it epitomises the difference between operating standards. The Americans would go in and find a fight and have it because they had the numbers. Yep. All right. And it was the battalion commander who was quite okay up the front of the aircraft, up at the front of the air, air mission controller's aircraft, and he had a resource. He had troops, and he'd send them in, and the helicopters were purely and simply trucks to do the job, right. a modern truck. Wow. Um, another tactic uh, which really shook me the first time it happened. Oh, I wasn't prepared for it. We went off as a as a group of 10 aircraft um, across to... Oh, I'll tell you about our operating zones later. Remind me, please. Yeah. But we went yeah. off to a place in the middle of the Mekong and uh, and all of a sudden the, the commander of the troop said, where's the other control and, uh, command and control aircraft? I said, well, what do you mean? 
Well, what he meant was he was going to split us into two groups of five, which he did. We ignored the second command and control aircraft, which we didn't have on that day. Yeah. We rectified yeah. that later. But basically, two flights of five, and we would go hither and thither around landing zones, waiting for something to happen. We would land. The troops would stay on board until we got shot at. Okay. At which point the troops would disembark and you'd drag the other five aircraft over to reinforce you, provided they weren't in the same trouble themselves. And that happened. That was called eagle flighting. And the Americans loved it. They thought it was just absolutely the best thing since sliced bread. Well, you, can you can understand why we didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that's how it was. Um, one of my pilots, we had um, we had five Australians Navy people killed in the 135th, and in the year that I was, and uh, sorry, five Australians were killed, and a total of uh, 25 were wounded. 30 people out of the 50 aviators in all of the four groups. Right. 30, 30 out of 50 is not a good woman number. No, it's not. Um, in the year I was there, uh, two of my people were killed. Australians were killed. There were 13 Americans. Sorry, there were 13 all up in, in the year that I was there, Americans and the two Aussies I've just mentioned. Yeah. And 35 were wounded, which when you... When you run the figures out, is about a casualty every week, a bit over a week. Right. Um, and that's how it was for the whole four years. Uh, we lost 25 aircraft totally destroyed whilst I was there. Um, 117 were took enemy fire of some description. Well, we only had 31 aircraft, but, uh, you know, a lot of them took a lot of fire. And when you add all that up, it, it came to 117 incidents. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'll give you a whole heap of other statistics. Let's just talk a moment about the, uh, about the, uh, the, the geography of the place. Um, Vietnam, South Vietnam was a very narrow country from the, demo, uh, the demilitarised zone up north, it was probably only about 30 or 40 miles wide. Right. Uh, separated from Laos and Cambodia by, a, uh, by jungles and mountains predominantly. But as you wind your way south, it broadened out and the mountains stopped um, about 30 or 40 miles, no, 50 miles northeast of Saigon. The jungles continued, but the country was dead flat. Right. And I right. really mean dead flat. <clears throat> From that point, um, well, most people would know where Ho Chi Minh City is, Saigon uh, of my times. Um, east of Saigon, out to Benoit and beyond, and then south to Vang Tau um, would be east 50, 60 miles to Tukor which was the end of the jungles, if you like, and then three and four core tactical zones were the areas from Saigon to the west and to the south. 
and they were basically flat. Plenty of jungle, um, but dead flat. It was the Mekong Delta, which had been formed over millions of years, and it was at probably no point was it more than, at any point, was it more than probably 10 feet above sea level. All right. Absolutely dead flat. Except for places like Vung Tau and Nui Dat and uh, the long, um, what were the mountains called near Nui Dat? Can't remember them at the moment. But the well, they were mountains in as much as they were, they got up to about a thousand feet. Okay. All right. Um, probably over an area of, I don't know, 10 or 20 square kilometres. And the next mountains, the long highs, that's what they were called. D445's home base, by the way. Um, North of Saigon, you got to a place called Tainin, and near Tainin was a place called Rock City. And Rock City was just these phenomenal boulders, um, some of them hundreds of metres wide and hundreds of metres high, and houses perched on the top. Okay. Yeah, and... And then north again, you'd get to the border and beyond was much the same. Um, you could see these places for miles because they stood out. They were the only vertical relief in the whole of the of that part of the world. Okay. The geography otherwise was rivers, canals, and and jungle. Absolutely dead flat. Wow, amazing. Absolutely dead flat. So that was the environment, and the enemy was there all over it, all so, over it. Uh, how far was the longest flight that you would have done or lo- longest flights? Did you, did you go very far away from your base uh, on a yes, flight? We yes, we did. Um, thanks for reminding me. Our base was – we had um, – the 135th had a number of bases. First of all, when they arrived in, in July, August of 67, they were in Nui Dat, uh, sorry, then Bung Tau, and yep. then very yep. quickly moved up to Black Horse, which was well north of the Australians at Nui Dat in a different area. Um, they stayed there until Christmas of 68 and moved in a couple of days uh, up to another base called uh, Bear Cat which was very close to Benoit and, and Long Bin, which was where uh, General Abrams and Westmoreland's had their, Westmoreland had their headquarters. All of this well east of Saigon, um, 30 or 40 miles east of Saigon, we were very close to the border of Three Corps and Two Corps, Two Corps going up into the jungles and the mountains getting towards North Vietnam. Right. We operated most of the time, south and west of Saigon and across to the border with Cambodia. Now, that distance is, I meant to actually check it out on Google Earth, it's about 220 to 250 kilometres east-west, all right? And again, dead flat, dead flat. You might have been a line on a paper map to tell you where South Vietnam and Cambodia joined up, but you couldn't see it on the ground. There was no hope, which is why we crossed into the other country occasionally. Right. Um, North-south, exactly the same from the uh, the Cambodian border north of Saigon 
Um, you may have heard of the Coochie Tunnels. No, I haven't. Oh, okay. It's a uh, it's a big tourist thing these days, um, where they show you this underground city of uh, six and seven stories underground. Oh, it was wow. actually it was under an American base called Coochie. Believe it or not, um, okay. I refueled there dozens of times, but there was this underground city underneath it. Fascinating how the yeah. two could coexist. They didn't coexist exactly well, I'd have to tell you. But anyway, <laughs> north of Coochie, Tainin, and Tainin's very close to the border with Rock City. But anyway, from there, dead south, uh, 300, 350 kilometres, absolutely dead flat. Absolutely dead flat. We operated over the whole of that area, and you could be uh, you could be anywhere one day and totally divorced from it the next. Okay. Um, any number of times we flew west across to uh, the Cambodian border, a place called the Seven Mountains, and the reason we were there, uh, the Seven Mountains could be seen, um, not all that high. I think about fifteen hundred to two thousand feet, and and the only uh, landmark on the western side of South Vietnam, and it was also a base for um, considerable number of South Vietnamese troops because it was an entry point uh, for the um, North Vietnamese through Laos, Cambodia, down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and this was one of the entry points into South Vietnam. Okay. And so uh, uh, we had plenty of operations out there. There was a South Vietnamese and, uh, and any number of Americans on the top of these various mountains. And in the middle of the Blumen Mountains, the sort of the halfway up bit, uh, was uh, enemy territory. Right. And we had, we had one of our aircraft was shot down there one day. Um, the co-pilot was, no, the captain of the aircraft was killed. The co-pilot and Australian, who was a gunner, and the crew chief, managed through the whole of the night defending themselves from uh, North Vietnamese uh, counterattacks. Um, and it wasn't until the next day that they were rescued. Okay. Under okay. fire still. Quite a brave event. Quite a brave event. Yeah, amazing. So that's... Um, oh, I've rambled a bit, I suppose, but... Uh, not Every at all. It's, it's fascinating. Totally different. <laughs> Every day was totally different. How, how long uh, was the tour of duty that you guys had to do, uh, you know, in Vietnam? Yep, sure. A full year. Full year, uh, leads okay. me on to, full, Leads me on to a lovely story, which I'll give you. When we arrived, I could not understand the huge smiles on the guys' faces that we were relieving. Yeah. They were just so happy to see us. And I thought, oh, that's nice. I know you. Oh, you know, that's great. <laughs> they weren't happy to see us. They were happy to know that it was the end of their tour. Yeah. And I didn't realise that until I got to the end of my tour, welcoming the third group in. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it was a full year. Um and it was in, and, and the way it worked was insidious. Uh, you would arrive and you would see, we all had helmets and flak jackets and the air crew had the, um, the chicken plate, armour plate thing uh, to wear, heavy mongrel stuff it was to, by golly, you sweated. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. that was that. 
and and any number of Americans would be going around with their name on the helmet and then a number. And it'd be being crossed out regularly, replaced with a number now, another number. Yeah. And it was quite simple. If you arrive when you arrived in New, in Vietnam, you were a newbie or an FNG. Yeah. Something something new guy. Yeah. Right? Yep, friggin' new and, guy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then the numbers. Now the numbers started at 365. That was your first day in Vietnam. And your second day in Vietnam was 364. All right. Okay. Yeah. And, and it was just, it, it, it grew on you so quickly. It really was. You were a new guy. And then you then you got to see little um, cartoons of a helmet with a pair of feet sticking out from underneath. And yep. you knew then that that guy was less than 100 days to go. All right. Okay. And yep. then when, when it got down to about 50, you would get F-U-B-I-S. Fuck you, buddy. I'm short. <laughs> and you went short until you could only see the helmet and his toes sticking out. Yeah. And when <laughs> he was really short with 10 days to go, only the helmet. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was incredible. It was, that marked your life. Yeah. It was, it was funny how it inculcated itself into your life. That's amazing. <laughs> so we had a year. We had a year, um, and it was a fairly tough year because from where we were, we were in a base, um, Black Horse, just north of Nui Dat, was essentially the home of the 11th, US 11th Cavalry. George yep. S. Patton II, son of General Patton of World War II fame and of Anzio, is it? Yes, Anzio. No, um, I think it was Anzio where he made his name uh, and then marched forth um, and took very bravely his troops through the Black Forest. Yep. Anyway, General Patton's son was in Vietnam as the head of the 11th Cav, a, uh, uh, an APC regiment. That was their base at uh, Black Horse. And we owned... We owned nothing. We had a we had a, a tiny spot in the corner of that base with one of the artillery regiments, literally, or batteries, sorry, only twenty yards from our tents. Oh wow! And every night there'd be counter counter fire and harassing and interdiction stuff going on, trying to get to sleep. Well, that was that was dreadful, but you did. You eventually discerned the difference between. Whoosh bang and bang whoosh. Okay. Now, bang whoosh is the artillery going out. Okay, you could hear it. You could hear the bang and the whoosh as the, the shells went out over the jungle. Yep. And when you work the differences out, whoosh bang, bang whoosh, then you could get to sleep. And it took about a month for me. Wow. And then you could sleep through anything. In that time before you started sleeping, though, you're obviously lying awake at night, and then you've got to fly the next day. That's not going to be not not going to be good on your body. It wasn't. It wasn't. I. I mean, obviously, we got sleep. Um, but yeah, no, it was a. It's a. Uh, it, it's a. 
it's a harrowing time, I guess, is the best way of looking back on it. Um, we, our day, let me tell you how our day began. It began by being at your aircraft at 4.30 in the morning. Okay. All right. We would pre-flight it in the dark, start it up, and if it worked, you'd then shut it down. You'd go and have breakfast, get a briefing or a rebriefing. There was generally a, an evening briefing the night before, yep. um, but they frequently changed. So it was another briefing after breakfast, and then you'd get out to your aircraft at about 6, and by 6.30, uh, you'd be up and away. Okay. And we wouldn't come back until the battalion commander in the air mission commander's aeroplane had said you can go home. Okay. Now, an easy day was four or five hours. You'd go to pickup zone um, and you'd get a company on the ground in a landing zone, um, flight time between PZ and landings at PZ and LZ uh, would be, well, could be dependent on how far apart, well, obviously dependent on how far apart they were, but uh, generally speaking, probably 10 minutes flight time tops. You can cover a lot of ground. Yeah. Um, get them on the ground, go back and get another company, and you'd have a battalion on the ground um, by the time you needed to refuel. Right. And then you'd hang around. If nothing was happening to the troops, then you'd go back to the you go back and refuel, and there were refueling places everywhere, um, and then just wait for the call to either go and shift the troops to another uh, landing zone because nothing was happening. Um, or if you had a really slack day, you'd wait until you'd be waiting, hanging around until three or four o'clock and the call would come to come and pick them up and take them away. Okay. And if that happened without any interference from the enemy, um, you know, you had about a four or five hour flying day. Wow. But there was trouble brewing when you had four and, uh, when you flew between eight and ten hours a day, yep. which was pretty regular, um, because you know you were doing a lot of moves, and generally speaking, people were under fire. And we looked after whoever we were with. So if we were working with the Seventh U.S. Infantry or the or the Ninth Infantry or the the um, the Forty Fourth Tactical Zone, uh, Vietnamese or the Eighteenth Armed. It was the 18th Arvin, by the way, who had the 125 casualties I spoke about earlier. Right. Um, right. These are the Vietnamese, generally speaking, had to get back to their bases of a night time to guard the roads uh, and bridges around the bases. If they didn't, the food supplies wouldn't come in from the districts to go to Saigon and all that stuff. Okay. All right. The Americans were much the same. They didn't stay out overnight if they could help it. Um, but by crikey, they love being out in the day <laughs> with those eagle flights. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, the really mongrel days uh, were the, you know, the 14, I flew up to 14 hours one day. Oh, wow. Um, and, and, of course, if I did, everybody who was with me did the same thing. Yeah. Um, because we were always as a group. And so just a whisker under 14 hours, seven and a half hours before we shut down for the first time with some hot refueling going on in between. Um, but, uh, you know, those were the days when aircraft were being shot down and uh, you're going in and rescuing people and doing all sorts of stuff. Right. And the medevacs. Sorry, I went off the track a bit. We always looked after the medevacs. 
and uh, the troops and the resupplies and, of course, our own aircrew. Okay. Always went in to rescue yeah. them. So uh, in that sort of circumstance, how many rescues did you personally have to do picking up other wrecked aircraft uh, crews? A few. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, let me think. Let me think. Um, didn't often do it as a leader. Uh, that wasn't my call. Right. Um, but um, it was easiest to disengage tail end Charlie. That was what he was there to do. Um, but the day that I got my, uh, I was well, the action for which I was awarded my Distinguished Service Cross went a bit like this. Um, there was a Vietnamese company out at a place near Ben Trey. Now, Ben Trey's in the Delta, um, about 100 miles southwest of Saigon. It was a mongrel place. It was, um, it was the home. It was owned by the North Vietnamese, no question of that. And every time we went there, we would always have something to happen. But anyway, the Vietnam, a Viet, South Vietnamese company got... Uh, surrounded by a North Vietnamese battalion and were looking looking like they were going to get wiped out. And so we were called in to assist um, by taking another company of troops in to this tiny area that they're doing their best to defend. Um, so I led them in, I led our troops in, and I landed about, well, it was a tiny landing zone and the we went everywhere in Visa 5, and on this day, we all had to punch up into, into two lines of five, five, five on one side, five on the other. Yeah. I'm at the front end of this lot, landed in. Troops would normally be out in about five or ten seconds, but in that five or ten seconds, um, I got my first uh, taste of actually seeing my enemy um, only about 10 or 15 yards from me. Um, I mean, I was hard up on the trees uh, because everybody else needed space to land. And the only way to get out of that landing zone was to do a 180-degree turn in the hover and all of a sudden tail in Charlie as the leader. Yep. Okay, which is fairly easy. Um, and out we go, taking fire along the way, but no one gets shot down. We get back to the pickup zone we all do another 180-degree turn, and now I'm the leader again, which is why I did the turn. Okay. And back we go into this same landing zone. Under more fire, um, the gunships, by the way, were on either side of us on the way in. There was no artillery to help us. Um, and so I go in and we land the troops. I take a bit more, well, I think everyone took a bit of fire. Take a few. You can actually hear them, by the way. You can hear the bullets hitting. Oh, if you're really interested. Oh, yeah. And you can hear them. You can hear the guns when you hear the weapons when they're firing at you, but maybe not hitting you. Um, there's quite even above the noise of everything. There's a bit of a noise. You can, you can still hear the. Oh, I don't know how to describe it. A ping, ping when the hit, when there's a hit, but uh, something a little different. You can still hear the shots. It's a very directional noise, of course. Right. As you'd expect. <laughs> anyway, getting off the plot, uh, do the second landing and the troops get out reasonably successfully, another 180-degree turn, and we're all out uh, 
only just departed the landing zone and the call came up for uh, an urgent medivac. And now I'm tail end Charlie, so that's my job. And then I went. Yeah. And I picked up uh, a couple of seriously wounded guys and uh, and took them back to the uh, the nearest base hospital. Okay. Um, so that was that was basically uh, my distinguished service cross. But I mean, look, that was going on all over the place. Um, I had another day when a gunship was shot down, and um, I was fl- I was actually flying as tail end Charlie that day, rather than in the lead. And uh, I, the command and control aircraft said we've got a gunship down. I said, well, I'll go and pick them up, and I could see where they'd gone in. Um, I, had a, I had a brand new gunner with me, fresh out of America. He, yeah. It was his first day flying, and I briefed him and uh, and told him, you know, if you hear any firing and you can see where it's coming from, you you just get straight at it. Uh, but generally speaking, I would direct the fire. But on this day, I'm hurtling in towards this gunship, which is on fire on the ground and you know you don't know what you're going to have to do when you get there yeah command and control aircraft is well above us and he's giving directions like nobody's business do this do that can you see them i can only see three heads where's the fourth um that sort of thing and we start taking fire and and my gunner says sir 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 i think they're firing at us and i'm i'm doing the best to tell the command and control aircraft to bugger off and let me do what I wanted to do or I could see what was happening. And this poor gun is saying, I think we're being shot at. What do I do? But any event, we landed and picked up the crew and uh, there were four heads popped out of the long grass um, away from this burning gunship and uh, and off we went. But that that was just par for the course. Right. Yeah, I did, I did a few of those. I took a new fella from uh, Australia, another a brand new Navy guy uh, with me on his first flight when I was the leader uh, of the Slicks. And it was his first flight. Uh, And his initiation was to land, well, was to be with me uh, whilst I took my flight of 10 to relieve another assault helicopter company, which had three aircraft shot down and were all burning in, in this particular landing zone. Oh, wow. And that was that was that was our marker as to where to go. You could see the burning aeroplanes. Well, poor old Jed, who was with me, um, was a bit concerned about that. And when I said we're going back to do it all over again, and by the way, welcome to Vietnam, he wasn't impressed. <laughs> but, yeah, all right, bit of, bit of uh, humour on the side. Um, we we flew vastly more hours than. Um, than any of the Australian Air Force people did. Um, their, their flying times were based on the Army's operational necessity. Yeah. If the Army didn't want them to fly, well, that was fine. They didn't. And they once we, by the way, Navy put, um, helped the Air Force out with air crew numbers initially. Um, we, we provided eight pilots for the, for the Air Force, um, yeah. as you guys did with your um, 13 Kiwis who flew with 13, 16? 16, yeah, 16. 16 um, Kiwis who flew with nine squadron over the whole of the, uh, that time that 
9 Squadron was in Vietnam. Our Navy guys only flew in 1967 and a little bit into the beginning of 1968, okay. uh, by which time the Air Force had you guys there and had their own numbers, uh, their own pipeline under control. Right. Gotcha. Okay. So that's the, that's, the, that's the relationship there. And one of your people, I think we discussed earlier offline, one of your people, um, K.J. Wells, Kenneth Wells, yep. flew with the 135th. Not with me. I came in after he'd been, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, um, he, he flew with us for a little bit, um, but our flying rates were well over, probably fifty percent more than the Air Force, um, yours and ours were doing with the Australian Army. Right, gotcha. Okay. Not that they didn't have their interesting times; they sure did. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of brave stuff went on. The uh, as it, you know, whilst we all wanted peace and quiet. Um, the SAS patrols, particularly the army, our army SAS would um, would always want to go in quietly. But when they stirred up a hornet's nest, by crikey, they wanted to be dragged out quickly. And that's when the, uh, the nine squadron guys really did some pretty brave work. Um, and, and, and a lot of it wasn't the open landing zones that we operated in. I mean, we had to be able to get either five or ten aircraft into something. Yeah. So we weren't, we weren't winching guys down through triple-tiered canopy and all that sort of stuff in the jungle. Right. Or winching them out. Um, uh, dodgy work. A friend of mine um, tells me that, um, as I already knew anyway, having flown the, the aeroplane or that type of aeroplane, the winch wire was only 100 feet long. But he was winching a, in, a, in, uh, in amongst trees which were 150 feet high. So what he did, he went down in amongst these blooming trees, weaving his way down, and then finally got his winch wire to the ground to get people out all the time being fired on. Oh, man, that's crazy flight. <laughs> that's pretty good. Well, I think if you check the records, there'll be a few air, a few of your Kiwi guys will have been involved in some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, the let's just duck. If you go to the National Archives of Australia, you can find the Nine Squadron daily record. Yeah, Not you sent me the you sent I, said, I did send you the link. Yep. And if you put your link up, that link up on your web page, um, there will be people who I would hope are, are, would be interested enough to go and check it out. Um, it's a day-by-day -day account and it works backwards. You've got to start from uh, it's 500 pages and it's the whole of the history of the of nine squadron helicopters, which starts in uh, Malaya well before Vietnam. But if you go to about page, this is off the top of my head, around about page 380 to 400, you'll find yourself in the beginnings of Nine Squadron in Vietnam. Okay. Then work, his, work your way through the numbers there on each page. Everything has been notate, notated in, in really good detail. Crews, aircraft and actions. Yeah, fantastic. When, um, well, before you went to Vietnam, uh, like immediately before, were, were 
the Navy crews uh, flying Iroquois or UH-1s um, in Australia. Were, were you uh, already yes. flying that type? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I can explain in brief terms. I uh, I joined the Navy in 62 as an observer. I'd done time in the back of Wessex helicopters as an anti-submarine um, operator. Um, in 65, I went to Sea Venoms as a, um, uh, what was it, a, an all-weather night fighter uh, operating the radar set there, locking onto aeroplanes and, and chasing them all around the sky in Sea Venoms. Yep. Uh, some time before this, I'd had my hand up to become a pilot, um, but I did my time in Sea Venoms as an observer, went to pilot's course in 1967, number 63 pilot's course, Air Force at Point Cook in uh, Victoria with 40 other guys, Army, Air Force, and there were three Navy people, myself and a couple of mates. But myself and one of the other guys who was with me, we joined up together as observers, uh, were neck and neck on this business of flying. And uh, at Point Cook, I took out most of the prizes as ducks and, and all of that sort of stuff. And David, in his turn, at uh, the uh, Air Force Base at Pierce, where we flew vampires on our advanced flying school, he, he turned the tables on me and he took out the prizes and I came in second, which was fine. We were both doing incredibly well. We're still great mates. Um, and both of us thought that uh, Skyhawks was where we were going to end up. They were the new aeroplane and we were all expecting, both of us were expecting, well, all three of us, the other guy was a midshipman. We're all expecting to go there. Well, what happened is that David and this other guy went to the Skyhawks and I went to the helicopters. Right. And was I annoyed? Just a little. But anyway, <laughs> just a little. Um, I went then to 723 Squadron at Nowra in February 68 and did my Iroquois conversion course, helicopter conversion course, and then to... 725 Squadron Wessex anti-submarine aircraft, this time sitting up in the front seat and blissfully, pretty well blissfully unaware that the Vietnam War was on. Well, not quite. Uh, I'd already been, you know, February was when our first person was killed in Vietnam and went to his memorial service. And uh, anyway, uh, I was ensconced in the Wessex aircraft uh, doing the thing there and one of the guys on 723 Squadron one day with a crew of two air crewmen um, got killed in a helicopter accident on the on a rifle range near us uh, near where the base was and all of a sudden I'm now going to Vietnam because he had been the 2IC of the second group to go Oh, right. Unbeknownst to me, I was his relief. And, and in fact, unbeknownst only to me, it would seem, because everybody else around the base apparently knew before I did uh, that I was going to Vietnam as his replacement. Right. Okay. 
So uh, we had Iroquois at Nowra for quite some time. I don't know when they got there, but it would have been around um, probably 64 or 5. I'm not sure of the dates. I suspect it's a similar timing to when the Air Force got theirs. Yeah. Um, the same. Ours were slightly different models, actually. We had a bigger bigger engine in our in our um, in our Hueys than the okay. Air Force did in the nine squadron ones initially. Okay. That's a bit yeah. off the track. So yes, I went to Vietnam as as Peter Ward's replacement. Um, so that's how I got to Vietnam. We had had Navy had had helicopters oh years before the Air Force had. Um, yeah. Wessex, we'd had sycamores. Uh, we had wasps uh, on board our survey ships. Uh, we had vastly more helicopters than the Air Force did. They had a couple yeah. that did SAR duty around the country uh, for the jet jockeys who might need to bail out and, and get pulled out of the ocean. Yeah. That was about the beginning of the Air Force helicopter world. Okay. But, they, but I mean, they came to their um, peak in Vietnam. There's no question of that. Yeah. Finish the question of how long my tour was. Yes, it was a year. Uh, we were in a base from which there was nothing to go to. We were surrounded by the enemy. Right. Black Horse, um, the 11th Armoured thing was just carved out of the jungle with a berm around the perimeter, and our people did nightly uh, guard duties on the perimeter. Uh, when we shifted out of there and went to uh, Bear Cat, a much, much bigger base, it was a Thai army base, 10,000 of them. Okay. But there were still guard duties to do. Obviously, the Thais did most of that work, but we still had to do our bit. Yeah. But at yeah. one time during the, um, the Tet 1969, the base was totally surrounded by uh, the nasties. And we used to take off as, a, as, you know, the 15 aircraft as a gaggle, um, just take off and flog out over in the direction we were going and form up and uh, eventually get together somewhere along the way to wherever it was we were going. But when we were surrounded, um, a single aircraft would take off and circle within the base, climbing to height. Oh, wow. Okay. That's how nasty the situation was at that stage. And basically, what I'm saying is, there was nowhere to go. Um, there were no, there was no, uh, there were no facility. Well, there were. There was some dreadful stuff that the ties operated um, at Blackhorse, but you didn't want to have anything to do with that. Yeah. Um, so we we had our own bars and and all of that, but that was the only relief we had. Right. Drink yourself stupid and go and fly the next day. Um, <laughs> um, but. Everyone um, got a week's R&R, rest and recuperation. And, um, and that meant you had, uh, you could, you could well, the Americans took it all over, uh, uh, took advantage of it better than we did, obviously. It was their system. And if you recall, there was a huge R&R thing going on in Australia where Americans came in their thousands to Australia. They loved the place. Right. So did the girls in King's Cross, but uh, that's, that was, that's, a, that's an element of the economy that uh, one doesn't speak of. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in any event, uh, being a married young man, uh, when I had my R&R, &R, I, 
I left it until as late as I could in the tour. I thought the last thing I want to do is to go on leave and uh, and then have to come back from some form of sanity into insanity for a long period of time. So I took my R&R. I'd, I'd arrived in September 68, and I took my R&R in uh, at the end of May 69, yep. about the two-thirds point, um, and came back to Australia and Sydney and had a fine reunion with, with my wife and then came back up to Vietnam with just, you know, a few months left, hopefully. Right, gotcha. Um, and then that's what everybody did. Um, that was a week off, all right. Um, so we've got 34 weeks to fill in. Um, there was a Peter Badco club down at Bung Tau, and I got there once for uh, two days and one night. Okay. All right. Um, others might have done a bit better. I mean, look, I was air crew and I was in a in a heady position, and uh, and I did a fierce amount of flying. It seemed to be the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, but our younger guys, the maintainers, the younger guys who um, who had a bit more uh, freedom, um, got to Bung Tau and so on. But they had a busy life too. Um, yep. When they weren't maintaining aeroplanes, they were doing guard duty uh, on the berm. And if they weren't doing that, um, they were driving convoys. Oh, right. Trucks, okay. All right, because uh, each helicopter company was supposedly totally independent. And that's how we shifted base. We shifted ourselves uh, mm -hmm. from Black Horse to Bear Cat. These guys did their ordinary maintenance and then... Uh, with the trucks that the company had and borrowing from other places, um, they set us up in the new base. Okay. And so I went on uh, a combat assault on, on, I forget the dates, but let's say the, the 10th of December. And on the 11th of December, uh, or sorry, on the, 10th of, on the night of the 10th of December, having taken off from Black Horse, I landed at um, Bear Cap. Okay. My new home for the next, uh, well, we were there for, I was there for nine months. Right. But the next group, our next contingent of Navy people, had much the same thing to do. Um, they arrived in uh, just at the beginning of October, and I said goodbye to those guys. And within, uh, I think, another three months, they moved on to another base, this time in the Delta, um, We'd been operating there exclusively with incredibly long transit times. Um, somebody finally got the smarts to say, oh, right, let's cut this, the travelling time down. We'll shift the whole company, which they did. Right. And so the 135th went to a place called Dong Tam, which is right in the middle of the Delta. Um, and I mean in the middle of it. It was a foul place. Um, uh, anyway, yeah. That put them in the middle of it. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. <clears throat> well, Max, I, I think we've covered a lot of ground here. And, <laughs> and uh, rambled. I, I saw oh, it. No. no, not at all. It's fantastic. It's it's really, really interesting. But uh, we, we should probably uh, close this uh, episode and perhaps come back another time to talk about the rest of your career with uh, flying in the sea venoms and 
various other things, the uh, helicopters. Um, Just looking and, at the, I've been on for nearly two hours. Good <laughs> <Lord>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Doesn't time fly when you're having fun? Absolutely. Actually, yeah. you should actually. We we we. Sh I've spoken about how it was uh, and what we were doing. I think what we should do on the next, if you want to, yep. I can talk yep. briefly about my glorious career. But I would like to talk about how people now look at what has happened yeah. from a couple of aspects, not so much to reanalyze the war and how wrong it might have been, but the effect on people. Yeah, absolutely. Which, uh, may may help because there's a lot of defence people in your country and mine who are operating around the world these days. And with the benefit of hindsight, hindsight only, uh, we might talk about some of that. So, yes, I'd be happy to talk with you again. Excellent. I'm sure we'll come back to talking some more Vietnam stories as well. Well, thanks again, right. Max. It's, it's been uh, absolutely fascinating and uh, I've learned a lot, a, a heck of a lot. And um, oh, thank you. And thank you for your service as well. Uh, well, thank you. Yes, I appreciate that. Um, plenty of questions that uh, we can talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Well, we'll, we'll definitely come back and, and uh, have you on the show again. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. You, <laughs> Thanks. Better, you better you better haul me in. I'll I can ramble. I think I have rambled. You're going to have to do some editing. Well, I don't know. I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. So um, I've enjoyed every minute of it. <laughs> <laughs> All Cheers. Right. Okay. Thanks. Good on you. Cheers, mate. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. <laughs>